0: Download episodes of previous shows. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to East Central Missouri and the world and welcome to the James Strong Show podcast, podcast number 231. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for making us a part of your day. I appreciate it. This podcast was recorded on the morning of Saturday, August the 14th from the James Strong Studio in Western St. Charles County. Beautiful day in East Central Missouri here. Uh, we had some storms earlier in the week, some heat earlier in the week, but this weekend, wow, sunny, low to mid-80s, lows in the 60s. Outstanding, outstanding weather. Uh, the essay today is going to be on Nazi war criminals. And You think, where did you pull that topic from, Strong? Uh, well, it had to do with a movie that I saw on the airplane while I traveled this week. Uh, And while the movie had nothing to do with Nazi war criminals, it kind of got me thinking. So I'll talk about the movie briefly and then go into uh, the reason for the essay. And then we'll go ahead and talk about some of the Nazi war criminals that you may or may not have heard of how they escaped, where they escaped to and how for the most part really got away scot-free with genocide before we do that let's talk about a few topics in the news today um <clears throat> afghanistan's in the news big time um while the troops have been <clears throat> u.s troops have been evacuated from afghanistan three thousand more troops have been brought into kabul to help evacuate uh those afghanis who have served as close allies uh, intelligence translators etc And we're getting them out before the Taliban basically takes over that whole country. Um, I've been asked by people, what do you think about that? We're leaving those people in a lurch. We're doing this. We're doing that. There's no good solution to this problem, folks. Uh, You could say we probably should have never gone in there to begin with. But that ship has sailed. Uh, No one has ever been good at nation building because what you do when you nation build is you pardon me what you do when you nation build is you try to pass your will and your thoughts, desires, values on to others who may or may not be receptive towards that life. And we kind of did that in Afghanistan. Uh so we negotiated with the Taliban—they promised to be good people, so we decided to pull out. And guess what? They lied. <laughs> That's how Islamic fundamentalists are—they just lie. Uh, the Quran says to lie, to cheat and steal against the infidel, and they certainly follow their holy book. <clears throat> that being, <clears throat> excuse me. That being said, uh, the Afghan army is uh, is so much better equipped than the Taliban. They have an air force, they have better weapons, but they have no desire to fight. So basically they're dropping the weapons and they're running and the Taliban are taking over the country very quickly. Uh, again, there's no good solution to this, but uh, unless we want to be there forever, it's time to rip off the Band-Aid and I think that's what we're doing, like it or not. Um, <clears throat> Heard some, uh, a story this week that kind of, got me to think about uh, rock groups from the past. In fact, they're doing a tour. I think the tour's about done, but uh, the group, the turtles, remember the turtles happy together was their big hit. Uh, the turtles were, were a very interesting group and they were founded by two guys, Mark Volman and Howard Kalin. And, these guys formed the Turtles and then decided, yeah, we don't want to be part of the Turtles, so they broke it off. <clears throat> because of legal ramifications, they couldn't take the name the Turtles with them, and they couldn't even use their own names when recording music. That's right. Mark Volman and Howard Caleb, who founded the Turtles, not only could not go someplace else and call themselves the Turtles, but they couldn't go someplace else and and refer to themselves as Mark Volman and Howard Kalen. So what did they do? Well, they did what every uh, rock and roll guy, every fringe rock and roll guy did back in the day, or what many of them did. And uh, they joined uh, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. And Frank Zappa named named them uh, Fluorescent, leech that's what he named mark volman and he named howard Kalen eddie well fluorescent leech was shortened to flow and eddie stayed as eddie so they became flow and eddie and they got back into music but it was more comic music kind of the uh oh i guess for lack of a better word the uh What's his face? Well, Weird Al Yankovic, the Weird Al Yankovic of the day, except for they didn't do parody songs. They did their own songs. If you ever get a chance, uh, if you've never heard of Flo and Eddie, check out some of their parody music. It's hilarious. Uh, it was done back in the 70s and 80s, so it's not politically correct at all. You can find it on YouTube. Try uh, Flo and Eddie. Illegal, Immoral, and Fattening, that was the name of the album, and one particular cutoff of the album called Living in the Jungle, it might be the most politically incorrect song you've ever, ever heard. Check it out. It's hilarious. Also, I posted this on my Facebook page, uh, and it had to do with the continuing... News saga, the continuing news story about the Phoenix Lights, the story that won't go away. And if you read about the Phoenix Lights, uh, they were first discovered by a, uh, or first reported, I should say, to authorities by an independent pilot who was flying in the area, saw the lights, didn't know what they were, so he called uh, the Phoenix Airport, reported it. They said, Look, we don't see anything, there's nothing on radar. This individual says, well, I don't know if there's anything on radar or not, but I'm telling you, I'm looking at these lights. I just want to go ahead and let you know this is happening. That independent pilot, that private pilot, was actor Kurt Russell. Yeah, that Kurt Russell. He saw was the first one to report the Phoenix Lights to authorities. And we're told, sorry, we see nothing on radar. The saga of the Phoenix Lights continues. And it gets more weird all the time. Well, my essay today is going to be on Nazi war criminals. Uh, Seven of the Nazi war criminals, some you've heard of, some you have not heard of. And uh, I decided to do a, a podcast on this topic because of a movie that I saw uh, on the airplane I traveled this week and on the airplane we had uh, a delay sat on the tarmac for a long time so my flight from Charlotte back to St. Louis took a lot longer than it normally would and I was able to see I was able to see a uh, a movie I was able to see a movie called The Good Liar and it starred Helen Miram and Ian McAllen. And it was an old-style movie, Uh, no superheroes, no special effects, no CGI, just a strong storyline with good actors and actresses. And the plot is, it takes place in 19, no, 2009, okay? And basically it talks about two people who were children in Nazi Germany. And the story has nothing to do with the Nazis. It's just it took place during that time, and they had to back it up to 2009 so that people who were alive during that time could actually be, a story could actually be made about them. Because as we get to the point where World War II ended in 1945, which was, what, do the math quickly, 67 years ago, okay, something like that, uh, it's a long time ago, and most everybody who can speak firsthand about that time, especially those who served in World War II, are dead, and those that aren't dead are darn near dead, and'll be very, very shortly uh so I so based on that story on that movie the indirect uh, relationship to to Nazi Germany, <clears throat> I wanted to do a podcast on, uh, on Nazi war criminals because there were so many of them, and so many of them basically got away scot-free with genocide. So let's talk about this on today's essay. Um, after the Allied forces defeated Germany back in World War II, Europe became a difficult place to be associated with Adolf Hitler's Third Reich. History is written by the victors, and the victors did not include the Nazis. So there were thousands of Nazi officers, high-ranking party members, collaborators, uh, war criminals who escaped across the Atlantic, finding refuge in, of all places, South America, in particular, Argentina, Chile, and Brazil. Now, Argentina, for one, was already home to hundreds of thousands of German immigrants, and they had maintained close ties to Germany during the war. After 1945, President uh, Juan Perón of Argentina himself was drawn to fascist ideologies, enlisted intelligence officers and diplomats to help establish rat lines, escape routes via Spanish and Italian ports, or many in the third Reich who else gave them aid besides the head of uh, Argentina, actually the Vatican, believe it or not. And actually many, in many cases, they unwilling, unwittingly did this. Uh, They were just helping to uh, hoping to help Catholic war refugees relocate. And uh, sometimes They happened to be war criminals. Sometimes the church knew about it. Sometimes they didn't, depended on the individual. Now, as thousands of Nazis and the collaborators poured into the continent of South America, a sympathetic and sophisticated network developed, easing the transition for those who came afterwards. Now, while no definitive evidence exists that Hitler himself escaped his doomsday bunker and crossed the ocean, Such a network could have made that possible. Actually, it's not out of the realm of possibility that Hitler escaped to South America. Lots of books, lots of stories, lots of movies, television shows have mentioned this. Now, did Hitler escape to South America? Probably not, okay? But many people did. And this essay is a list of some of the most notorious Nazi war criminals who did make their way to South America. As I mentioned before, uh, some you will have heard of, some you will not have heard of, but I'm going to list the seven that I discovered, that I uncovered, the seven most notorious. The first one, you've all heard of him, Adolf Eichmann, maybe the world's most wanted Nazi. Eichmann was the architect of Hitler's final solution, and he basically wanted to exterminate all Jews from Europe. Now, the notorious SS lieutenant colonel masterminded the Nazi network of death camps that resulted in the murder of approximately 6 million people. Not all Jews, but most Jews. Uh, mostly Jews, I should say. Eichmann did orchestrate the identification, assembly, of, and transportation of European Jews to Auschwitz. Treblinka, and other death camps in Nazi-occupied Poland. Yeah, most of the concentration camps were in Poland, not so much Germany, because I guess they didn't even want them in their country. Now, after World War II ended, Eichmann went into hiding in Austria. And with the help of a Franciscan monk in Genoa, Italy, he obtained an Argentinian visa and signed an application for a falsified Red Cross passport. In 1950, he boarded a steamship to Buenos Aires. And under the alias of Ricardo Clement, Eichmann lived with his wife and four children in a middle-class Buenos Aires suburb and actually worked in a Mercedes-Benz automobile plant. Israeli Mossad agents captured Eichmann in a daring operation on 11th of May, 1960, and snuck him out of the country by doping and disguising him as an El Al flight member, El Al, the National Airline of Israel. Now, in Israel, Eichmann stood trial as a war criminal responsible for deporting Jews to death in concentration camps. He was found guilty after a four-month trial in Jerusalem and received the only death sentence ever issued by an Israeli court. He was hanged on May 30th 1962. Dr. Joseph Mengele, you've heard of him too. Uh, the angel of death, he was infamous for carrying out macabre experiments on pregnant women, twins, and others at the Auschwitz death camp. And he eluded capture in South America for 30 years. <clears throat> Second only to Eichmann as a target of Nazi hunters, the doctor went by the name of Angel of Death, and he conducted macabre experiments among prisoners in the Auschwitz death camps. Now, he was an SS officer, and Mengele was sent at the start of World War II to the Eastern Front to repel the Soviets, and he actually received the Iron Cross for his bravery and service. But then he was wounded and declared unfit for active duty, so he was assigned to the Auschwitz death camp. There, he used the prisoners, particularly twins, pregnant women, and the disabled, as human guinea pigs. Mengele even tortured and killed children with his medical experiments. Now, After World War II, Mengele spent three-plus years hiding in Germany. In 1949, with the help of a Catholic clergy member, the Angel of Death fled Italy to Argentina, where he owned a mechanical equipment shop. He remarried under his own name in Paraguay in 1958. That's 13 years after the war. The doctor lived in various Buenos Aires suburbs, but after hearing of Eichmann's capture, he went underground, first in Paraguay, then later in Brazil. Remember that movie, Boys of Brazil? Same guy. Now, West Germany had sent an extradition request to Argentina, which dragged their feet. Because they claiming the review was necessary because of the doctors, their doctors' crimes had been political only. Nazi hunters pursu- per- pursued him for decades, but Mangala ultimately drowned off the Brazilian coast in 1979. He had a stroke, was in the water, and he drowned to death. Now, but because he had operated under an assumed name in Brazil, this wasn't known until his remains were forensically tested in 1985. So, Joseph Mengele basically lived out his life in freedom. Never captured, never tried, never convicted. Number three, Walter Ralph. He was an SS colonel, and Ralph was instrumental in the construction and implementation of mobile gas chambers responsible for killing an estimated 100,000 people during World War II. Now, according to the UK's MI5 intelligence agency, Ralph oversaw the modifications of trucks that diverted their exhaust fumes into airtight chambers in the backs of vehicles capable of carrying as many as 60 people. Now, the trucks were driven to burial sites, and along the way, victims would be poisoned or asphyxiated by the carbon monoxide in the trucks. After persecuting Jews in a a Vichy France-controlled Tunisia between 1942 and 1943, Ralph then oversaw Gestapo operations in northwest Italy. There, just like in Tunisia, Rolf gained the reputation for both utter ruthlessness and in, infamous indiscrimination of execution of both Jews and local partisans. Now, Allied troops arrested Ralph at the end of the war. He escaped an American POW camp and held, hid in an Italian convents. After seeing After serving as a military advisor to the president of Syria back in 1948, he fled back to Italy and escaped to Ecuador in 1949 before settling in Chile, where he lived freely under his own name. He was never captured, and Ruff worked as a manager of a king crab cannery, and actually spied for the West Germans between 1958 and 1962. His whereabouts became known after a letter requesting that his German naval pension be sent to a new address in Chile. So get this, he was changing his address and he said he wanted more of his pension money sent to a new address. That's how they found out about him. He told them (laughs) he was arrested in 1962 in Chile, but freed by the country's Supreme Court the following year. Chilean President Augusto Pinochet repeatedly resisted calls from West Germany for Raus extradition. He died in Chile in 1984. German and Chilean mourners at his funeral gave Nazi salutes and chanted Heil Hitler at the funeral. Never tried, never convicted, never extradited, and lived until 1984. Franz Stengel he was, he was called the White Death because he wore a white uniform and carried a whip. Stengel worked at the Actonon T4 euthanasia program uh, which in which the Nazis killed those with mental and physical disabilities. He later served as the commandant of uh, Sobobor and the Treblinka death camps in Poland. More than 100,000 Jews are def- believed to have been murdered during his tenure before he moved on from uh, Sobobor Sobobor to Treblinka, where he was directly responsible for the Nazis' second deadliest death camp. 900,000 people were killed there. Now, his path to uh, South America, again, via that rat line. The rat line was the, uh, uh, I guess the the method in which the uh, war criminals went from Europe to South America. But via the rat line, uh, he went to South America at the end of the war, actually, before he went to South America. He was arrested and captured by the Americans, but escaped to Italy from an Austrian prison camp. Uh, he was assisted by a Nazi sympathizing bishop, the uh, infamous Alois Hudal, who helped other Nazis as, as well escape. Uh, Stengel traveled to Syria on a Red Cross, Red Cross passport, then he sailed to Brazil in 1951. He worked at a Volkswagen plant in Sao Paulo under his own name but then was arrested in 1967 after being tracked down by Simon Wiesenthal, the famous Nazi war criminal hunter and Holocaust survivor. He was extradited to West Germany. Stengel was tried and found guilty of the mass murder of 900,000 people. He was sentenced to life imprisonment. He died of heart failure in prison in 1971. Number five. Joseph Joseph Schwamberger. He was another Austrian Nazi, and Schwamberger was an SS commandant in charge of three labor camps in the Jewish ghettos of Nazi-occupied Poland during World War II. Brandishing a horsewhip and a German shepherd trained to attack people, he arrived in 1944 at the Rosado Forced Labor Camp, where prisoners died by the hundreds. Many shot by Schwamberger himself. In 1943, he organized the mass execution of 500 Jewish prisoners at the, let me get this right, pre death camp. He actually shot them in the back of the head and dispatched Jews to the Auschwitz death camp. In Melik, another camp in 1944, he cleansed the city of Jews. His path was littered with corpses, said Nazi war criminal hunter Simon Wiesenthal. He was arrested in, South, in Austria in 1945, Schwamberger escaped to Italy in 1948, and months later arrived in Argentina, where he lived openly under his own name and actually obtained Argentinian citizenship. Now, he was sought by West Germany for extradition in 1973. He went back into hiding, but was eventually arrested by Argentinian officials in 1987 after an informant responded to the German government's $300,000 reward. He returned to West Germany in 1990 to stand trial. 1990, 45 years after the war. Witnesses at the trial said they had seen Schwamberger throw prisoners into a bonfire, kill Jews kneeling beside mass graves, and slam children's heads against wall because, quote, he didn't want to waste a bullet on them. In 1992, he was found guilty of seven counts of murder and 32 counts of accessory to murder, sentenced to life in prison. He died in prison in the year 2004 at the age of 92. 2004, 60 years. Is that 60 years? Yeah, 60 years almost after the end of World War II. Number six, Eric Pribke. He was a mid-level SS commandant and member of the Gestapo. Pribke participated in the 1944 Adriatine Caves Massacre in Rome, in which the Nazis slaughtered 335 people for retaliation of the killing of 33 German SS members by Italian Partisans. Priebke admitted killing two Italians, but claimed he was just following orders. He also signed off on the transport of 200,000 Roman Jews to Auschwitz. He escaped prison uh, in, in Britain, he was in a British prison of war camp and escaped by cutting through barbed wire while his guards were drunk. With the help of, again, Bishop Alois Hudal, Priebke fled to Argentina a, on a falsified Red Cross passport in 1948. He settled in the idyllic mountain town of San Carlos Bariloche in the Patagonia region, beautiful part of the world where he operated a Viennese deli and worked in a German school, living under his own name. Now, it wasn't until 1994, but Priebke's past was revealed to the world after an ambush interview by ABC newsman Sam Donaldson. And I remember when this happened. It was just 1994, not that long ago. Now, as a result of the uproar following the interview, Priebke was extradited to Italy, where he was convicted of war crimes and sentenced to life imprisonment. To be served under house arrest he died in 2013 at the age of 100 just eight years ago he died at the age of 100 amazing number seven last and certainly not least gerhard bone bone was a, a lawyer and an ss officer Bohm headed the Third Reich's work group of sanatoriums, nursing homes, and was responsible for the administrative logistics of Hitler's Acheon T4 euthanasia program. Now, he tra- claimed to be just a mercy killer, but Bohm was actually one of the leaders who carried out a systematic extermination of Germans, his own people. Why? in order to purify the Aryan race and avoid state expenditures on those with mental and physical disabilities. In other words, they weren't fit to live, so why even spend money on institutionalizing these guys and gals? All told, this program killed some 200,000 Germans with incurable diseases, mental illnesses, and other handicaps. Victims were led to gas chambers in the institutions and then cremated. The program served as a trial run for the mass extermination of camps later operated by the SS. Bone was thrown out of the Nazi party after submitting a report accusing his agency of fraud and corruption. After the war, Bone fled to Argentina, disguised himself as a technician for the military under the country's president Juan Perón. He later admitted that Perón's helpers gave him money and identity papers. Now, he lived just fine in Argentina until a coup d'etat deposed Juan Perón. Bowen then returned to Germany and was indicted by a court in Frankfurt in 1963. He was released on bail. He escaped again to Argentina where he was finally extradited three years later as the first Nazi war criminal surrendered by Argentina. So yes, Argentina didn't surrender a Nazi war criminal until 1966. Declared a unfit to stand trial. Bone survived another 15 years in prison until he died in 1981. Now, <clears throat> a couple of things on these seven monsters. Many of them never paid for their crimes. None of them paid for their crimes properly, except for maybe Eichmann. Okay. He was, he was brought to justice fairly quickly and, uh, and executed well, fairly quickly 1962, less than 20 years after the war. But uh, most of them, many of them, just escaped scot-free. Now, I mentioned many people from the church, and uh, they helped these Nazi war criminals. Now, some of them did willingly, knowingly. Some of them did not. Some of them were helping groups of people and In helping large groups of people, the war criminals were mixed in with the mess. In other words, they were trying to do the good the best thing, but the not so best thing uh worked out. Uh we talked about the uh the bishop, the uh the the Vatican bishop who actually helped many Nazi war criminals escape to uh to South America. Olois Hudal, who was a bishop who Actually, after the church found out that he was doing this, he wasn't excommunicated, but he was stripped of all power and banned from Rome. Uh, Some say he was excommunicated, but really the way it works in the church is you excommunicate yourself. So for all intents and purposes, he was excommunicated where he lived out the last part of his life uh, basically in exile. Um, And the Perones. The Perones helped a lot of Nazis as well. That's why they went to Argentina because Juan Peron and his wife Evita were basically national socialists themselves. They believed in the Nazi philosophy. Which is interesting in itself because I mean Eva Peron, who the people called Evita, wife and of Juan Peron, actually co-president of the country, not legally, but she was the first lady who held a lot of power. And basically, Evita Perón was made out to be some type of a heroine. Oh, an Argentinian heroine. They even made a musical about her. Evita, don't cry for me, Argentina. The Perones were socialist, national socialist monsters. And for some reason, many people have just elected to see them as a uh, patriots and uh, nationalists for their own country and lovers of the people. They were Argentinian Nazis, folks. Same thing goes with the, the not-head kids or not-head people who wear the Che Guevara shirts. Che Guevara was not a, uh, a visionary revolutionary who's trying to right wrongs. Che Guevara was a racist murderer. And... <laughs> Anybody who wears a shirt with Che Guevara on it and doesn't know the history of Che Guevara, just like the Perones, you need to educate yourself. You really do. Um. But I wanted to do this again. Like I said, why did I choose this for the topic of today's essay? Uh, And it has to do with the fact World War II ended in 1945. So quick, do the math. That was... 75 years ago, 76 years ago, folks. That was a long time ago. And while I grew up, World War II was very much in the forefront. I mean, when I was when I was born, uh the war just ended 14 years ago. Okay? The people who were the captains of industries, the movers and shakers, the ones who made the decisions were the World War II vets. The guys who were there. That's who ran the world. So we heard things. I heard things firsthand. I was there. I saw this. Not I read it in a book. Not I heard a guy talk about it. Not I saw a movie about it. I was there and this is what I saw. Virtually all my bosses growing up working in the machine shop were World War II vets. Today, Most of them are dead. Soon, they'll all be dead. I mean, think about it. The war ended 75, 76 years ago. If a soldier was 20, he's 96 now. I mean, people live a lot longer than they used to, but if the youngest World War II vets are 96, in the very near future, there'll be none left. And What happens if you have no living survivors to give you a first-hand story of how things happened? Then history becomes fuzzy. It becomes skewed. It becomes different in translation. And what I mean by that is, and many of you have probably done the same thing, if you talk to someone who fought in World War II if you if you talk to someone who personally experienced it it's a first person description as to what happened i did this i did that i saw this i experienced that now this podcast is okay i heard a guy talk about stuff that he read about okay That's third-hand at best. And while I'm not doubting the accuracy of this podcast, it's accurate as far as the documentation that I could find is accurate. I didn't experience this firsthand. And history, like anything else, is written by the victors. Now, am I trying to insinuate that because we won the war, the Allies won the war, the history was written in a certain way. No, I'm not saying it's it was skewed. But what I am saying is written word is different from a first-hand experience. And it's almost like the Nazi war criminals of the past, I mean, virtually they're, they're all dead now. The last one I think was... Uh, who was that guy, Duke Majin, who was a uh, Ukrainian, uh, I think it was a sergeant in a concentration camp, uh, but he was in his 90s, and he came to trial and, and basically didn't know what was going on and soiled himself in the trial. Okay, and they figured, you know, okay, yeah, this guy's guilty, but we're not going to put him in prison. I mean, he's just too old for this, and he'd since died. They're all dead now, and that ship has sailed. But it did happen. It really did happen. And I'll go back to our first story and the whole deal in Afghanistan where we're pulling out our troops. Um, The United States was involved in World War II from 1942 to 1945, three years, not 20 years. And everything was done in three years. Whereas in Afghanistan, after 20 years, We're no closer to a solution than we were 20 years ago. And again, I'm not saying we're doing the right thing by pulling out, but I don't know what else we can do. And we can talk about that firsthand now because there are a lot of veterans who served in Afghanistan that can come back to tell that story. My great-grandchildren will not know that story firsthand to my great-grandchildren, that story will be the same as World War II. Yeah, maybe they knew people who did it, but they were older and now they're all gone. The reason for me even mentioning this at the end of the podcast, if you get a chance to hear a first-hand story from anyone on any topic that even remotely interests you, if you think this is a credible individual, listen to him. Because quite often, a first-hand account is very, very different from what we read about in the papers or the magazines or the internet. Certainly different than what we hear on television or radio. Absolutely different from what we see in the movies. A firsthand account is always best take advantage of it when you can well that's it I'm done James strong show at hotmail.com that's the email address send me your email address and when you do I will go ahead and put you on the mailing list I will send you a link to the podcast upon publication you can download it and then listen to it at your leisure go to spreaker.com I uh, shoot how am gonna couple hundred podcasts there you can look at. It's funny because if, as I look at my history on the podcasts every single week, I get two, three, four, five, ten, twenty 10, 20 podcasts that are downloaded from earlier this year, last year, even 2019 people are downloading podcasts and listen to them, listening to them from years ago. And the topics are pretty self-explanatory. So go to Spreaker.com, take a look at the topics and, uh, see what I've talked about in the past. It can be a lot of fun. And again, downloaded You can listen to it whenever you want, on a walk, sitting, relaxing, driving in your car. If it's downloaded, you can listen to it without the internet. So there you go. Well, that's it. I'm done. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, check me out anywhere you get podcasts. And again, I'd love to hear from you via email, jamesstrongshow at hotmail.com. Until next time, this is James Strong saying,
2: Adios. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review
3: on iTunes.
4: Geico has a 97% customer satisfaction rating and has been saving people money for 85 years. It's hard to beat that. But you're right. Switch to Geico. It's obviously a good idea. Today's episode is brought to you by Patreon. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash and become a $2 backer today and get early access to the new episodes. I'll be leaving a link in the description down below. But for now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Augmented Experience Podcast. I'm your host, as usual, Josh Ravellis. I'm a student, musician, and a gamer at heart. Join me as I sit-down every week to talk about all the latest news in the technology, business, and video game world. I hope you guys enjoy. Oh everybody welcome back to the show my name is josh revels i'm your host as usual and obviously welcome back to the show today's episode 179 of the show before we get started on bed house cleaning okay? because well you guys know i like to do it around here it only makes sense that we do it so let's get on with the house cleaning i do want to say thank you guys for coming back and listening today's episode it really does mean a lot to me you guys constantly take time every day to download these episodes to share these episodes to constantly keep letting me know how you feel because let's be real here i can't do any of this without you so thank you i really do appreciate it I do also want to say thank you to the Patreon backers for supporting the show because, well, you guys support the show and I greatly appreciate it and you get benefits. So if you want to become a Patreon backer, you can click the link down below and, you know, pick the tier that you want to pick. But I do want to just take a little bit of time just say thank you guys for, you know, just downloading these episodes, for sharing them, because it really does mean a lot to me. We're already close to 2,600 total downloads, so hopefully we can break 3,000 before the end of the year, or at least the expectation is at least 3,000 before the three-year anniversary of the show, which is crazy to think about. But thank you guys. I really do appreciate it. But I do want to say that today's episode is a little bit more of a slice of life. So we're doing a real talk today. And this one, I wouldn't say, is, I wouldn't call it a therapy session for myself. I'm not going to call it that because it sounds weird. But I feel like this is something that a lot of people in my age range start to feel. And I only feel like it's appropriate to talk about it because, well, It's something that we all feel as we get older and it's growing up. And to me, I think the reason this came to mind or this really showed up mainly is because, well, I'm about to graduate college soon. And for me, I have been very open. I've been very honest that for me, it feels weird knowing that my college run, my college experience is almost over and it's just like, you know, what do we do now? And it's, I've noticed it because I've seen like many people that are in my, you know, my class or people that are my age range that they're like, to be honest, it feels weird growing up. It doesn't, you know, because everyone's always talked about how when we're little, they're like, oh, enjoy it while you're young. Because as you get older, life kind of sucks a little bit because you got to deal with bills. You got to deal with health insurance, you got to deal with like all this other jazz. And then you see little kids, you know, specifically, like not even just us, but there's always little kids like, man, I want to grow up already. I want to be treated like a big kid. I want to be an adult and I want to have all this freedom. And it's like, well, yes, you do get more freedom as you get older, but that freedom also comes with more responsibilities. And it's something that I've begun to realize more and more. It's not, I know it kind of sounds weird because I'm making it sound like a doomsday thing that it's like, oh, we're just all going towards the inevitable end of, you know, closer to the dirt, which let's be real. We're all dying slowly. So let's just be real here. We're all going to die. We know that that's, you know, the ultimate end goal. And then, you know, in my case as a believer, and then, yeah, we know that when we die, if we put our faith in Christ, then we would be in paradise with Christ. Not because of our own acts, but because of what he has done for us. You know, we can go into that another time. But for me, it feels weird because for the first, like, I understand, like, I've heard this conversation had in front of me before. Like, I know there's people that have talked about it where they, people don't like uncertainty. Just human nature in general doesn't like not knowing what's going to happen. And to be honest, for a lot of us that are in school, school is certainty. It's like, well, I know that I'm going to show up, do this, do that. And then the end goal is here. Right? I get my diploma and then I move on with my life or I want to go and get a master's. Or I want to go get a doctorate or I want to go to med school or I want to go to law school or I want to, you know, go get a trade, get some certificate. You know, there's a certain, you know, it's just a continual repetition of the same cycle. It's like, okay, I got to go to school, do this, do this. So I can get this at the end. But it's like, what do you do when there's nothing there? It just, it feels weird. And to me, yes, my goals and aspirations for my career are, I'd say to me, very straightforward. Like I i have been honest with a lot of people that I've talked to on a personal level that for me, I eventually want to get to the point where I can go work for Apple to be part of their marketing team, because as a marketing major, I don't see a greater privilege or a greater honor than doing that because you get to work with one of the most premier marketing teams on the planet and for me as a marketing major, that sounds awesome because I eventually want to get to the point where, you know, I can be somebody on the stage presenting these products in front of a large amounts of people in person and then millions around the world through the power of the internet. And that just sounds fun. Like to a lot of people, that sounds terrifying, especially if you're not comfortable speaking in front of people, which I'm being honest. Yes, I am extremely comfortable speaking in front of people. I'm not going to pretend like, oh, Oh, Josh is just BSing that he's not comfortable. Dude, I'm comfortable talking to myself in front of a microphone with nobody watching me and then do the same thing when I have my camera up, which we still don't. But you get my point is like, I'm comfortable being in front of a camera, talking to nobody. I'm comfortable presenting a project or presenting research in front of a group of hundreds of people in front of classmates. And I make it seem so easy. Granted, I don't associate that with myself because that was a gift and a talent that was given to me, but it's something that, yes, I'm very blessed that I've been gifted with you know, that talent, that it's just natural to me, that I'm not afraid to share how I feel, that I have the confidence to go out and say, okay, here's what I'm going to talk about today. And I don't have to make it feel awkward. I don't have to make it feel cheesy. You know, I don't I don't have to do some special song and dance routine to make myself comfortable or do this, you know, stuff that people say, oh, just imagine the rooms full of naked people. I'm like, I don't have to do any of that stuff because to me, I was blessed with the ability that it came natural, but I also had to learn how to be better at it. So let's just be real here. You're not going to get better at something if you don't learn, if you don't pay attention to people that do it better than you. And that's something that I did was I paid attention to people who have more experience doing this. And I've seen how to get better and better and better and continue to get better because that's the point is you're never going to be so good. You're like, oh, I don't have to learn anything. I got it all figured out because even me, like I learned a lot of interesting stuff in a lot of my marketing classes, a lot of techniques, a lot of things that come in handy, a lot of quirks, a lot of things that, you know, you don't say this in front of these kind of people because sometimes it can be interpreted the wrong way or you got to be very careful on how you. You know, emphasize something like that and then understanding the different ways of approaching different age groups and stuff like that. But how does this all relate to growing up? And to me, I have been honest that this school year for me just feels like a year of reflection, mainly because I'm looking back at everything that I've gone through to get to this point all the sacrifices, all the pain, all the heartbreak, all the sleepless nights all the studying nights, everything. Even though it's not over yet, it's still got a little bit more to go. But the end is definitely drawing near. And I do relate with a lot of my classmates where they feel nervous. I'm not going to pretend that I'm not nervous because yes, I am nervous. But I also know that I'm excited for what is to come, even though I don't know what is to come because I don't know the future. I just have to focus on day by day. That's all I got to worry about but I do understand why like I even said this when I turned 21 that I made the joke where I was like wow people really waited 21 years to have a drink legally and this is what it's all about like not gonna lie man this is kind of (laughs) lame and I like I'm not gonna lie like I do enjoy having a drink here and there with my friends but it's not everything you make it out to be and it's just like huh This is what it feels like growing up. It just, it just feels like, well, it's just another thing that you check off the list. And to me, it's, it does feel weird. It feels not nerve wracking because I'm not over here stressing about it. Like I'm not stressing about Like, oh, what's going to happen once I graduate? Like, ah, what am I going to do? I'm like, look, I know everything will work itself out in the end because that's how it always has been. It always works itself out in the end. That's just the cold, hard reality is that there's always someone in control and that's just the reality is that there's someone in control and it ain't you, bud. (laughs) And that's something I definitely had to learn as I've gotten older is like, look, you have to understand that you don't have everything under control. You won't because there's only three things in life that are guaranteed. You're gonna die, time will pass and life is truly random that you're not guaranteed another day that every day is a blessing so be grateful for it and make the most of it and to me like I'm talking about like my graduation stuff like dude let's be real I might I could probably not make it to my graduation that's just being honest like people say oh don't start talking about that and it's like dude you cannot guarantee that I can live tomorrow if you can guarantee me that then great bro I appreciate it but I'm just being honest I'm not guaranteed another day like who knows I might not finish, which by the grace of God, I hope I do. But if something happens and, you know, and I'm not able to finish, then, you know, what can I say? I wasn't able to finish, whether it be by my own choice or whether it be like, hey, bro, you ain't alive. (laughs) And to me, it's just very interesting when I take a step back and I look at everything and it's like, well, we've definitely been through a lot whether it be, you know, battles with depression, whether it be battles with, you know, addictions, whether it be battles with, you know, thinking about suicide. It's definitely a very interesting thing or predicament. And I think about it and it's like, I've been through a lot and here we are. And it's just like, you know, the countless number of people that aren't able to be here right now. And it's just like, as I get older, it's like, it, it gets a little bit harder, you know? Like I compare when I was 16 to when you know, it's a five-year gap because everyone always says, if you look at yourself from five years and from five years ago, look at you now, is there any growth? And I would say, yes, there is growth. I've definitely matured. I've definitely begun to understand things in a little bit more of a different light to become more, you know, understanding, a little bit more empathetic, a little bit more, like more kind, more caring. I'd say less naive in many aspects as well. I would say for me, like I'm talking about myself personally, I would say I've definitely become a little bit less stubborn. Like I'm more willing to admit that I'm wrong. And let's let, if you know me when I was younger, I was definitely very stern about admitting I was wrong. Like that's just me being me. And yeah, I have done better when it comes to truly letting go of the depression of letting go of the, you know, the suicidal tendencies or thoughts and letting go of those things and the addictions as well that it hasn't gotten easier. I'm not going to say that, but I've begun to understand how to handle these things much more appropriately. And that's something that comes as I get older with age and experience. Keep in mind experience is part of that stuff. And I realize that's something that's also important to growing up is you gain a lot of new experiences. You start to understand things and you start to understand, hey man, let's be real here, the world isn't all sunshine and rainbows. And there's some people that learn that early on. But as you get older, you're gonna see really quick that, well, this life ain't all sunshine and rainbows It's not what it makes it out to be. It actually has life actually kind of sucks and it's pretty rough and it will definitely punch you in the teeth if you think it's easy because a lot of people are like, nah, bro, I got life so easy. And it's like, bro, life is going to kick you in the teeth so hard that you're going to be like, well, crap. That's just, <laughs> that's the reality of everything. And to me, it's definitely weird, you know, because I don't know how things are going to turn out this school year. I don't know how things are going to turn out, you know, finishing up my last semester. I don't know how things are going to turn out during the summer. Am I able to get an internship, do finish an internship, and then maybe have a full-time job after I graduate? Because I get it like right now, I'm in a much better position given that I'm graduating in December of 2022. Everything goes well, you know, knock, knock. <laughs> Hopefully everything goes well, but I really hope that things do go a little bit better because I understand that yes in my position graduating December of 2022 right now is the best time that companies would look at me more seriously given they're like okay he's about to graduate he's about to come out of college you know we can give him an internship in the summer he goes back finishes his last semester and then comes you know comes work for us full-time starting off the calendar year and to me that would be nice I don't know which company I would pick I would definitely you know if I'm given even one job offer or if I'm given many job offers, I'm going to look at it and be like, well, let's weigh the pros and cons of it and see how this all turns out, to be honest. And for me, it's just been very, I think it's just been very interesting seeing how it's all played out, if I'm being honest with you. Am I excited? Yes. Am I a little bit nervous and worried? Also, yes. <laughs> I would be lying to you if I told you that I wasn't worried, that if I wasn't afraid that... Well, I wouldn't say afraid, but I would say not knowing what's going to happen does eh, does wake me up at night sometimes. And I do think about it. I'm not going to pretend that I don't because I like... As somebody that likes to go on long walks, I always like to think while I'm walking, like people think, why does he have no headphones in? And to me, it's just me thinking in my own head, me talking to myself, even though some people are like, that's weird, you weirdo. And I'm like, well, yeah, but... I like doing that. It's fun. It's able to, I'm able to be more aware of my surroundings and able to enjoy what's going on around me. But I know that I sound like I'm just rambling, but this is what it really feels like growing up is you start to ask a lot of these important questions, you know, because some people are like, well, am I ever going to get married? Am I going to get a job? If you know, am I even going to graduate college and get out of this hell hole? Well, de- I don't know, like depending on, you know, some people really like their colleges. Some people just want it to get over with. And you know, everyone's perspective is different. So that's just the reality is everyone's perspective is gonna be different. Some people just want to get college over with. Some people, you know, are going to trade schools and like, okay, I'm just trying to get this over with so we can, you know, get onto what I want to do. Some people, you know, just want to go work full time jobs. Or some of my friends want to go to the the military, whether it be actual the army, the air force, navy, the marines, whatever it may be. And it's something that definitely keeps me up a little bit is thinking about You know, what does the future hold? And that's the point of growing up is you start to think about these things and you're like, well, what's going to happen? And the reality is you just don't know what's going to happen. And some people are really afraid of that because they don't like not knowing what's going to happen. But it's also kind of enjoyable to me. Like to me, I say it's kind of enjoyable and that sounds really weird to say that, but it's definitely very rewarding. Being like, because to me it helps me grow my faith as well, which is something that also is part of growing up that I've noticed is my faith has grown. That I've begun to have a better understanding of my faith. That I have that I'm in a better place spiritually, emotionally, mentally. And these are things that don't just come easy. These are things that come with the experiences of growing up. That as you get older, you start to experience things differently. You start to see things differently. You start to approach things much differently. Like one of my mentors once told me that Josh you're in your twenties, your early twenties, you're still, you know, you know, still figuring things out and nothing wrong with that. But one thing you also have to understand is when you're younger, you like to roll the dice a lot. As you get older, you don't really like to take chances so much. You prefer to stick with, you know, certainty what's safe because in the long run, that's what works the best. While you're younger, yes, it's better to take chances and stuff. But when you're young, but when you're as you get older, you start to be a little bit more, you know, not conservative, like in the sense of like, you know, like a political party, but in the sense of like you become a little bit more conservative. You like to hold things to your chest a little bit more. You like to think things out a lot more. So it's better that you start to do these things now while you're younger because then it's easier as you get older. But whether you like it or not, this is what's going to happen as you get older is you're going to start to think about your choices a lot more. And that is true. Like that's something that I'd definitely do a little bit differently compared to when I was younger, where I definitely think about my choices a little bit more. I like to take my time and not rush the decision unless like, you know, the choice has to be made pretty quick, but at least they give me enough time to think about it. So that's something that I do appreciate to be honest now in regards to the whole idea of like the marriage stuff like yes I get it there's a lot of people that are my age range where they like to get married young like a lot of my friends got recently married so you know and they're about my age they're a little bit younger but and you know some people have been getting engaged and you know little old me enjoy being single which is fine like there's nothing wrong with that if you're single enjoy being single I'm being honest with you right now enjoy being single it's 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 a blessing but to me that's yeah like that's something that does come to my mind as getting older. It's like, well, I eventually want to have a family. I want to have, I wouldn't say I want to have a partner. Like, my mind has changed a little bit on how I think about that. Like, personally, that's just me. But I do eventually want to have my own family. But I'm also telling my parents, like, hey, I'm not going to rush anything. To me, what I've noticed as i gotten older is I like to appreciate my parents more, too. That's also something that has come with growing up, that I begin to understand you know, what they have gone through and begin to understand what they've had to sacrifice so that my life could be better. And I've noticed that a lot of things change as you get older, for sure. I know some people say, oh, life just gets more boring as you get older, even though, yeah, you get more freedom. You got more responsibilities, though. And it's like, no, there's pros and cons to everything. There's you know, as when you're younger, yeah, there's pros. Like you don't have to worry about much. You don't have to deal with so much responsibilities, but you also don't have a lot of say in the matter. You don't have a lot of stroke. You can't really make your own decisions up until a certain point. And then once you get, you know, once you get to the point that you can become a more autonomous and rational human being, which is, I question if some people have even become rational and autonomous human beings sometimes. But to me, looking at everything, I think it's just been a very, it's been a fun ride so far and I've been enjoying every step of the way. Has it been easy? No, I'm not going to lie to you. It has not been easy, but would I do it all over again in a heartbeat? I would. To me, everything has happened for a reason. And that's something that as I've gotten older, I've begun to realize is everything happens for a reason. I don't believe that things just happen just because. I think there's always a reason for something happening that its point is to help make you stronger, is to help you learn, okay, this didn't work out. Let's try this instead. That's a healthier option. That's a healthier alternative. That's something that doesn't look like a bad idea when you take the rose colored glasses off. And you only gain that kind of knowledge, that kind of experience is because you go through it. And sometimes you have to learn the hard way as you get older. And that's okay. It's, you know, preferably you would rather learn the easy way if you're given the choice. But if you choose to learn the hard way, then sorry, bucko, you're going to have to learn the hard way. And sometimes it's going to kick you in the teeth, whether you like it or not. And to me, I've enjoyed the ride all the way, to be honest. And I would do it all over again, but I hope this slice of life episode was very helpful. You know, what if you share the same, you know, let me know in the comments down below, if you share a lot of the sentiments that I feel right now, that as you get older, you're like, um, I don't really know, (laughs) but let me know what you guys think in the comment section down below, like, and share this episode, do whatever you want. Like to me, I just greatly appreciate that you guys allowed me to have a piece of your time to share what's on my mind, to share with you, to be open, to be vulnerable, because I always feel like, yes, I get it right now. People say we're kind of like in a tech news drought and stuff like that. But to me, I always like having the option of doing something like this where I can be real, where I can be open, where I can have a genuine discussion with you guys and share what's on my mind. And maybe whatever I'm sharing is actually helpful. And it actually encourages you if you're going through something similar, but I do thank you guys for your time. I really, really do appreciate it. To be honest, I'm excited going to this year, this school year, and it's going to be fun. And I hope you guys continue to keep me in your thoughts and prayers, continue to do the same thing for my friends and my family. Cause let's be honest, this year is still pretty weird and it's probably going to keep getting weirder as time goes on. So let's be real here, but thank you guys so much. Please continue to be safe out there guys. Please continue to be respectful and kind to those around you because that's really how things get better is if you just take, you know, a little bit more consideration of those around you and be kind, be respectful, you know, no need to start an argument or, you know, start causing a fuss if there's no need for one, you know? But thank you guys for your time. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. And as always, don't do anything dumb, guys. And please have yourselves a wonderful week. And I will see you guys next week. Bye, guys. Hey there. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day and listening to today's episode. If you're interested in supporting the show, whether it be financially, clicking the follow button, or just sharing the episode, it all works for me, guys. Thank you guys so much for your time, and I love you guys to death.
3: Are you expecting a child tax credit? Deposit and spend it securely with the BBT Money Account Prepaid Card. It makes managing your everyday spending easy. Apply for a prepaid card at bbnt.com slash money account.
4: Ooh, hear that? Don't let one bug become an infestation in your home. Take control and kill pesky insects with the bioselective power of Zevo. Unlike traditional insecticides, Zevo is made with ingredients you know, like essential oils. Plus, it's safe to use around people and pets when used as directed. Zevo kills flying and crawling bugs, including flies, ants, and roaches. Find Zevo at your local Target, Home Depot, or Walmart.
3: Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to SecTools podcast by InfoSec Campus. I'm your host of the show, Sanup Thomas. Today we have Hoshin with us uh, to talk about a lot of interesting projects that he worked in the past years. Hoshin, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. To start with, probably we'll go years back, uh, how did you get into InfoSec?
0: So I started doing a uh, software development somewhere around uh, 1999, Wow. And then, yeah, somewhere around there. And then around 2004, I was working with Oracle databases, Oracle financials, ERPs, not that something very fun, but <laughs> it pays a bill. Uh-huh. And uh, the good thing is that with all the knowledge that I got, I started uh, to try to find more interesting stuff about Oracle databases. I remember that I saw some vulnerability advisory in Backtrack. Look at what times I'm talking about. That was sent by one Scottish guy called David Litchell
3: yep.
0: about some vulnerabilities in Oracle Database.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: I took a look do the advisory and I said, hey, let me take a look if I can reproduce that back." I started uh, doing uh, that experiments in the companies, uh, production database, something that is not recommended, but... <laughs> And uh, I found myself in less than one hour finding other vulnerabilities similar to the ones that he reported. And this is how it starts, by chance. Then I started publishing uh, all the vulnerabilities that I found free in Backtrack and in Full Disclosure until somebody told me, hey, do you know that what you are doing for free is actually a job? Oh, really? There is people paying for these kinds of research? Yes. And so I start, I did a uh, vulnerability research at the same time that I was a simple uh, software developer mm-hmm. <laughs> to all the stuff. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I moved to be a DBA, but most of the time I was doing vulnerability research. So after two years or something like that, I decided that it was better to be freelance stopped doing software development for orders and i started doing exclusively vulnerability research uh, reverse engineering and until today
3: that's a long journey i remember the i think the the oracle one that must be like really long back this is the time when uh, the, the unhackable DB stuff uh, was, was pretty sure. much noisy. It was this time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> pretty long. Within the of unbreakable, it's like calling the attention of hackers. Yeah.
3: Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that, that, that's uh, pretty much now the trend. Like when you end up calling something as unhackable and it's just creating a lot of attraction for researchers slash hackers and yeah, who, are, who want to just uh, target those machines your researchers have actually more towards, I mean, just after maybe the Oracle researchers, that's more towards like binaries and like, uh, researching on like fuzzing or, you know, those kind of exploit research largely. And you're very focused on those areas. What was your journey? Like, I think in the, in the past days, there wasn't, I don't know if there wasn't like many, many resources where you can actually refer to, to learn these kind of stuff. And how, how did you get into learning these kind of stuff? For, for example, like someone asked you like, Hey, um, you can do the same stuff for, for example, like Adobe or, uh, or any other similar, um, softwares, which, uh, yeah, I mean, there are, there are bounties on it. You can, you can get paid for these amounts, but how did you actually get started in these? Uh, now, now the scenario is different because there are so much resources online where you can freely go and hmm. learn about it. And there are, there are established researchers, um, and tools also available these days, pretty wide open, right? And what was your yeah. starting like?
0: So, when I started, there was some kinds of information about how to do vulnerability research, uh, how to write your own tools for passing, how to write some exploits mm-hmm. for corruptions, for all the kinds of uh, vulnerabilities. But the information was a bit uh, like very scattered all over the internet. Um, one of the things that helped me most was uh, one hackers group. Uh, it was called, well, it is called a 48 bits. And there was some people that were actually doing the same as i was doing so they helped me i helped them that was very common back in the day i hope it is still today i think But when you were doing something or starting into something you ask hey does anybody know how can i do fasting of this stuff Hey, I did this or that. Maybe I can help you doing this, or perhaps this idea can help you. Hey, I'm writing this heap uh, overflow exploit, and I never uh, exploit a heap overflow. Oh, this is a link at least that you can do this and that. More than anything, it wasn't what was in the internet, but uh, the hours in the IRC talking to other hackers. Then when I was able to learn English, which actually took me around seven years to speak in a way that I didn't look like a stupidest, is when I had uh, more chances to talk to others and be able to read everything that was in English, in the internet, because at first, for me, it was too complex. English is not even my second language, so it took me a while. Mm-hmm. But yeah, how it starts.
3: Let's talk about diffing, right? And that's that's pretty much your mastery uh, skills for those who might not be understanding like what diffing and how it actually affects in vulnerability research can you just brief about what diffing is and what's the what's the uh, effect on uh, doing
0: vulnerability research sure so being diffing, the term was publicly coined by thomas julian halvan flake which is also the guy who initially wrote the first public version of any bindi tool out there uh, being different is the act of taking two or more words and finding either uh, what is similar or what is equal between two or more databases and what is different too. So, for example, if we want to search for some vulnerability that was fixed in some patch, what we search is not what is equal, but what changes from one to the other. However, let's say that we are working on some target, you are reverse engineering it, and you put comments in IDA in Functions, and then a new version of your target appears. You want to import everything you did in the previous version to the current version. So in this case, different is not finding what changes, maybe two, to put the focus later on to see what the vendor changes, but initially it's not like that. Initially it's finding good matches. And importing your work from the previous version to the next version that's it. finding everything that is similar or equal mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. basically it's about that we are not working the only thing just to to be clear when we are doing bin diffing, we are working naturally only with binaries mm-hmm. we might be lucky and have some symbols but in most cases we are not going to even have symbols
3: and it works on not just binaries but it all it can also works in like actual source code as well
0: so, this is another part that was more a research project, but finally I found that it worked, which uh, I called uh, Pigayos. Mm-hmm. So, this tool is a bit different. So, Diaphora is a tool to div uh, binaries against binary. Gayos is a tool to div binaries against source codes. Oh. So, you source codes, and when you cannot compile the source, maybe because it was created for some very old compiler, or maybe because the source is partial or, for whatever reason, uh, Pigayos takes the code, use C-Lang, analyze all the code, get, uh, the abstract syntax tree, extracts some features, applies, uh, graph theory to try to find matches and extract some features and then Another tool in IDA does the same for each function that we have in one IDA database, in one binary that we we'll open in IDA, and then tries to find matches, and that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. However, uh, finding matches between binaries and uh, source code directly is not as good as trying to find matches between binaries and binaries, because uh, <clears throat> what a programmer w- uh, writes the code the abstract syntax tree, which is a tree representing the syntax of the program, is going to be changed a lot. So if we write a function that has, let's say, two duplicates called chunks, when we build it with the compiler, depending on the compiling optimizations and stuff, those uh, duplicates chunks are going to be put in just one single chunk. So if we try to compare the AST of what was originally in the source code and then try to compare it to what the optimizer of the compiler optimizes, mm-hmm. and then either analyzes and the optimizer of the, the compiler reoptimizes again, naturally both abstract syntax trees are going to be very different. Compared to the Afora, the works only twenty-five for twenty-five percent of functions overall. Which is better than zero if you only have partial source code, but is always worse than doing directly different binary against binaries.
3: Yeah, the the accuracy will have differences, right? Source code versus binary, and binary versus binary. But it, it also has server specific cases, like when when you have source code to diff with, then yeah, that's a, that's a good option as well.
0: Yeah,
3: if you can well, compromise uh, on accuracy,
0: accuracy when you have uh, either partial source code or source code that you cannot build because if you can build, and this is something very common that I also do a lot. Mm-hmm. Let's say you are analyzing some target and you know that there is a source code for a previous version or for a, it is a fork that then was make a commercial. Like for example, let's say that you are analyzing some uh, commercial kernel basis on FreeBSD. Mm-hmm. What I will do is build the FreeBSD kernel So I have the FreeBSD binary with all the symbols, export it in IDA with the Aphora, and then import all the symbols into that uh, commercial kernel basis on FreeBSD that doesn't have any kinds of symbol. Mm -hmm. But because it is a derivative, the matches are going to be very good, and we can import everything. This is the case when we have a compilable or buyable source code.
3: Is there only, only like one, let's say the the uh, tra- parsing through the ASTs and then you know matching with with the with the simples? Uh, that's the no, only. No, technique, or there a- are multiple techniques to uh, do the?
0: There are multiple techniques. There's not one single one. So the AST is one, mm-hmm. but uh, also because the AST cannot be compared one to one for the reasons that I mentioned, uh, there are some fuzzy matches done. So if a percent of the elements of the AST match, then I increase a bit the likelihood Mm -hmm. of it being used match. Then let's say uh, one of the things that we always use to try to find the same functions are things like constants. Mm -hmm. If there's some debugging message in one function in the binary, and taking a look to the source, I find the same debugging message in some function. I know for sure that it is one. So this is another of the tricks that we use, uh, constants, not only string constant, but maybe some specific numeric constants, like a, some, something, some hexadecimal big number that you know is not going to appear in other parts. Also things like uh, if there is a loop in the source, it is very likely that there is a loop also in the binary. Mm-hmm. If there is a pair of loops in the source, the same number of loops is usually going to be in the binary. Another example is, uh, for example, switch. When there is a switch big enough, because it doesn't happen for a small switch, like, I don't know, a switch with four cases or something like that. Mm -hmm. If there is a switch in the source code, it is very likely that it's going to be some switch dialect, depending on the compiler, on the binary, after all. And which is more important we are going to have the same case numbers in both the source code and the binary. So we can say, uh, hey, we have one switch and one switch in the functions. Mm-hmm. And taking a look to the cases, to the switch cases, these are the same. So this is another way that we can do. And then after I gather all these evidences, there is a horribly wrong written by hand function that takes into account this and that and that and performs some adjustment to try to determine how close or how different are uh, that function in the binary and that function in the source. Uh, Because it wasn't very scientific, I decided that maybe I could use something a bit more scientific. Mm -hmm. So what I did is uh, try to learn a bit about machine learning, the basics, Mm -hmm. and then prepare, I prepared a big set of binaries that I built I analyze I train that model with uh, the binaries with the symbols, the binaries with the symbols and the sorts, and then try to apply that function. And that function found uh, very good matches, only in some cases. And it turns out that <clears throat> in most cases, that horribly wrong function that I wrote myself works better. But then I noticed that the machine learning model that I built on other matches that I didn't even know how to cause them. So now it uses this two. So only one rule, no, it's just a lot of techniques and also two different metrics. One basis on a training model, this machine learning and another one, which is an expert system, if you want to call it. And then it generates an average based on both.
3: Oh, interesting. I think there is definitely like a lot more areas to explore in these, uh, uh these techniques, yeah. right? Yeah. And I don't know if any more tools that actually like uh, do diffing. I mean, there are definitely other tools also, like starting from Bindiff and other alternative tools as well. But there's still more areas to explore in the diffing, you know, techniques.
0: Yes. Oh, so some of the things that are uh, used as these techniques for, for example, are also in malware batch analysis for massive malware analysis. Mm. So. Instead of differently different, one of the things that uh, suits techniques, because actually it's the same, are used is you analyze each uh, malware sample that you have from a set, or maybe you pull from some queue, the malware posts that are arriving. Then you analyze with, for example, uh, the Afora or with Bindiff, whatever tool. I know that uh, Google internally has an automation using Bindiff and exporting the results for all the things that they receive at Google. Right. But I don't think very little things, as you know what I mean. Yeah. I can also uh, myself <coughs> automate doing this uh, with the Aphora, so you export everything. And then uh, the Afora, as well as Bindiff generates different kinds of signatures for Phantoms and for uh, call graphs. So, these signatures that we get mm-hmm. from the export part uh, we call this as indicator of this Pantheon in this malware sample is the same Pantheon that appears in this set of malware families of, of malware samples that appear to be from another family. So this techniques are used, for example, to find, uh, correlations between different groups, between a source that was leaked and now different groups, or maybe different APD actors, whatever. Are using because they are reducing that part of code. We are not literally different, but we are. Going, uh, what we are using is the output of the export process, and instead of doing the usual this one binary against the other, we use uh, the signatures that we generate for the control program, for the source code, for whatever it is, to try to find similar functions.
3: Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. That uh, I mean, i always curious to know like how this how they are categorizing these as the, you know, the specific, um, Malware <laughs> cluster is 80, Yeah, right? exactly. Right. <laughs> That's, so it's, a, it's an interesting knowledge for me personally, <laughs> you build, uh, Daifora first and then Pegasus happen after that.
0: Yes. So, um, I also used to use, I've been this a lot back mm-hmm. in the day until uh, dynamics, the company that, uh, built built tool, was bought by
3: Google.
0: Yeah. When Google bought uh, dynamic uh, updates to Bindiff were none, because they were only interested in on those guys porting it to the Google infrastructure and using them. And Google didn't want at first to publish anything. During I don't know, four years or something like that, the so Bindiff was best. And also, uh, this is one of the first reason because Vindiv was subject to Google and there was no updates that I decided to write something. And also because uh, when I use Vindiv, I also have my other scripts to import and do all the stuff that Vindiv didn't do. For example, I'm a heavy uh, local types user. So I use a lot of strokes, enums, unions, myself. And uh, Bindiff doesn't export uh, structs, enum, unions. Bindiff exports uh, names for global variables, local variables, and that's it. Mm-hmm. I want uh, to export everything. If I have, for example, comments in the pseudo code, in the, the compiler, I also want them. Mm-hmm. If I have structs applied here and there, and if I have some union that took me maybe a week to discover, I also want it. Uh, back- what I used to do is import fit and then wrote one script that was actually a, a very e- early version of the Afora to export the local types, to export where they were applied, and then another script to import after the Bindiff pass. Mm-hmm. So when Google stopped the development of Bindiff. I decided that that was the time for doing something. The initial version of the Aphora, the initial proof of concept that you write and say is it works. It took me one weekend. It already has uh, that part that I tell you about uh, after importing with Dindiv, what uh, other scripts it has. So it was a matter of adapting them and also adding the exporting phase, exporting for all the functions and stuff. Uh, then I published or I commented in Twitter and in other places that I was writing one uh, Bindiff replacement tool that won't be open source. I was amazed because I didn't expect so many people. Basically, everyone was afraid of uh, Google killing Bindif for good. So that's not that uh, how to say that of a surprise. And uh, they found a lot of bugs, a lot of scenarios that I didn't consider during that weekend that I caused that part. I spent... I think it was uh, three months in total, uh, polishing it and adding that feature and fixing that back and integrating into IDA. At that, point, it was IDA 6.6. So it was in 2015. And then during the conference, SciScan, that you certainly know very well, I published it. And I mean, that's about and how it works.
3: Clearly, clearly, there was a need. And that's why people are just grabbing those code and trying to use it. I mean, the more bugs coming, coming to your code or, or your um, code repository, that, that clearly means that someone is interested to use it and someone wants to make it better.
0: No, actually, yeah, we have, I have a, a lot of users of the Aforas of today. Also, people, uh, and this is good, also people many times use both tools. They use Bindif at the same time because different different tools are going to find different results, which is obvious. There are some times where Bindif doesn't find this or that part that the Aphora finds, or the other way around, the Afora misses this or that because I don't have that specific heuristic that they did for something and they complete each other. And so uh, there are things like uh, Bindiff, as I said, doesn't import uh, structs, unions, enumerations, and anything related to the pseudo code. So I know people that use uh, Bindiff, but for importing that part, they use also the Aphora. Mm-hmm. And then there are uh, users that say, well, screw Bindiff, I only use uh, the Aphora.
3: This is, you, you released the first one in uh, 2015 in SciScan. Uh, 2014, yeah. you pushed the first uh, first course. Yes. Now it's almost getting one decade.
0: Almost. Uh, it is 2021 already. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
3: right. So and it's it's still actively developing. So I have a question here. Yes. How do you maintain the same level of interest in the, you know, how do you call it? Like it's it's like a horse focused. Like you just have a. You know, blinded focus on one project and maintaining it for like more than, uh, almost 10 years. And I'm definitely pretty sure it goes beyond that. What's
0: the secret? (laughs) (laughs) Patients. I mean, uh, it's not my only focus. I'm not, uh, I don't work on it every single week. Also because otherwise I won't I'm uh, just one single person using or writing a tool that is being used by hundreds as of today. Mm -hmm and I don't mm-hmm. want to get burned. What I do is if somebody reports me something that is critical, something that he or she cannot work for whatever reason, it is pressing, then I fix it usually the same day mm-hmm. or in a week. It depends. Uh, it depends also on the time that I have. <laughs> mm-hmm. Most of the time, what I do is when I want to ask some new feature, then I plan it, I have on my and then when I have the time, I just start coding it, and then I try it, and then I implement it. Other moments, not to be working always on the Afora, because I also like to do other research projects, is for example, if there is going to be a new Ida version, this is the moment to put anything new in in the Afora. So since uh, Ida 6.6, for every minor version of Ida before it was published, I got the beta, I tested the Afora, fixed bugs in the Afora, reported bugs in Hexray's tools, get all the feedback, implement, and before that new version was published, I publishes my own version of the Afora working with the previous version and the next version. So mm-hmm. what I do is, if there is a new release of Ida, or it is going to be a new release of Ida, is when I work hard on it. When I have some cool idea that I want to do, I do. Or when there is this crashing back or this very hard to find back or something that is stopping people from using it is when I put my phone on it again. But other than that, no, I, I don't work on it weekly because otherwise I will have abandoned it. Mm-hmm. Actually, most of the tools that I know that uh, there were a lot of tools like TurboDiff, Darren Green, EIL, different something, TurboDiff2, and many other different tools, they were all abandoned after a while mm-hmm. and not because yeah. they didn't work but because the authors probably got bored of it or simply didn't want to work on them anymore in my case mm-hmm. i have it more patent and i try not to get burned with it
3: if i ask you uh, probably over yeah almost uh, 10 years of experience and uh, 10 years of exp- uh, working with this diffing project right uh, Difora and uh, pegasus what was the most challenging one
0: um, do you mean about development or using the tool? In either of it? The more challenging one uh, wasn't actually in the AforA exactly, but in Pigayos, because that was research started from zero and was only one academic paper that actually was wrong and there was no source code. So I had no option to start and it was all the ideas that I might have. And it took me around half a year to get it working. Mm-hmm. As for the yeah, Afora, uh, all the other tools that were at the moment and also Bindif, they don't do anything with the pseudo codes. And I wanted to do also something with the pseudo code. So I have to think about possible signatures. I have to think about new kinds of passy based on the compilation. This is how I wrote those uh, on algorithms that are a uh, fussy graph based but that graph is not a control graph for the call graph anymore, but abstract syntax trees, because the compilers tend to generate always the same. So uh, matching between binaries and binaries, the same kinds of abstract syntax tree usually works very well. Mm-hmm. And that was actually very challenging for the same reason. There was nothing when uh, I wanted to develop that and I have to think uh, from zero and implement from zero and think about how we it could be done. It was more uh, research than actual development because when you finally have the idea about how you could do that moment that you say, hey, I know how can I do that? You have the idea in your mind. Then I take pen and paper and still one of the size. Mm-hmm. I wrote in paper, I do my diagrams in the paper and I said, okay, now I know what I want to write. And for example, the abstract syntax tree basis, uh, passes, it took me like a, one afternoon to write, mm-hmm. but it took me, I don't know how long time thinking about how I could develop that.
3: Yeah. I was expecting uh, pegasus would be more challenging than Typhor because, because of some yeah. examples, right. And there is no references for that. It's, it's one of a kind. Yeah. If you want to advise maybe, a uh, 10 years back yourself. Uh, what do you mm-hmm. tell to yourself?
0: You are doing right. Keep going. <laughs>
3: <laughs> is that the same same advice when when someone someone approach you said that Hey, I want to get into infosec. I want to get into maybe fuzzing or exploit research. What's the What's the go to word for you?
0: Uh, goal. I need a goal, and it's a goal. So I, I don't have a goal to be honest. I just do things that I like and some things that maybe could help others. Mm-hmm. This is something. I know that every person that knows me knows that I'm always open to help others mm-hmm. because I also remember that I was helped back in the day by others, many anonymous. And it's something that uh, I believe that in the hacker culture, that's very good, that still we try helping others and stuff. So, well, but about goals, I don't really have a goal to be honest. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean you're pretty, uh, pretty actively helping people uh, even on Twitters. If someone asks you, uh, um, maybe if, uh, regardless of the, the the complexity of questions, you're always helping and answering them. Yeah, thanks for contributing to those those uh, uh, tweets and and to the communities, and that's kind of keeping a sanity in the in the community. <laughs> and uh, yeah, also uh, definitely good to look up to. And yeah, it's, it's also. Um, giving a good atmosphere for the young generations of the young people who want to get into the same research or same same kind of uh studies and they get they get <laughs> some feedback I from so. people like you it is it is very generous i wish you all the best for your future projects Thanks everyone for listening to the podcast. We'll see you in the next one.
2: If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating and leave a review. Welcome to Titan HST's Business Conduity Today, hosted
4: by Todd DeVoe, where planning meets reality. (laughs)
2: Good morning, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you're at. Hi, I'm Todd DeVoe. And well, I've been involved in responding to emergencies and disasters for well since 1989. And in 1999, I started my journey in the field of emergency management while I was working in EMS in one of the nation's most active counties. And I started off in medical logistics. And since then, I became an educator in the post secondary level, learning and sharing what I learn is a passion for me. So, welcome to Business Continuity today, where we'll continue to learn together. Today, We're talking about essentialism and how to improve the core functions of your job. In 2009, Simon Sinek started a movement to help people become more inspired at work and in turn, inspire their colleagues and stakeholders. You know, people like Martin Luther King Jr., Steve Jobs, the Wright brothers, they all have little in common, except for the fact they all start in a place of why. You see, it's hard to do anything. Or at least anything right, and until you understand the why behind what you're doing, it becomes difficult to move forward. Socrates said, "The unexamined life is not worth living." And we can apply to both these questions of why and what. Taking Socrates' advice on examining what we are doing to make our job and our mission more productive. In any case, it's the, or, the order is to find out what is essential. We must first examine what our core function is and what's important. What do we do well? And well, what we don't do well. And these questions are asked if you find, if you find the answer, the function of essentialism um, is extremely easy. See, I was reading this book by Greg McNewen, and his book is called essentialism, the discipline of pursuit of less. And it's the three steps to understanding what is essential. One is be clear about the essential intent. Identify the slowest hiker and remove the obstacles. Now, some of these questions that you're looking at here go, what does the slowest hiker have to do with us? we'll get into that in a second. what are obstacles? Well, maybe more than just physical things. And to be clear, what is essential intent is, again, it goes back to the intent of what you're trying to do. See, let's talk about what is clear about the essential intent. As we're looking to make changes or cuts in the services that we're providing, if we're not intentional, we might make things worse for ourselves and our team. See, what is the outcome that you're looking for? If you can't answer that question, how do you know what to cut? So we talked about mission creep and other conversations, and how do we know what is creep and, and what is just additional projects that were within our wheelhouse? See, we use these skills that we already have. We're making plans, making solid objectives, and speaking solid goals. And once you have that laid out, it's easy to see what doesn't fit in your core function. Then we take those steps to remove or and what we call minimize, right? And we don't make them a priority for your department, but you need to communicate those findings with the team and with your command structure and explain your decision behind it. Now, sometimes within the organization, you have, well, what is, as McEwen calls it, the slowest hiker. And he goes into this story about Boy Scout troop hiking up the hill and a about this effect the accordant effect of the slowest hiker slowing everybody down and some of the stuff that he had to do. Now I want to examine this a little bit differently, right? If you have a team that you lead, okay, this is what it's really about. I want to share a story of my own. When I was serving as a corpsman with the Marines, we would go on these company runs and it may sound strange to you, but I'm not the fastest runner or but nor was I the slowest runner. I was kind of right there in the center of the pack. And so we had this guy named Troy who could outrun anyone. Like I think he was like run like a sixty-second mile. Okay, uh, all right. I'm stretching a little bit. I, I understand that, but man, that kid was fast. I mean, so much so that I used to joke with him that you know when he gets done at the end of the run, can you please go grab us some drinks and stuff, having it waiting for us because he's going to be there way before we get there. When Franklin, we had this guy. His name Franklin. He was the slowest human in the military. I don't know how he finished his PT test for the most part. We'd all be done with his PT, with our PT test, and he'd be kind of, you know, we're getting ready to hit the showers, reading books, hanging out, and Franklin to lumber across the line just before the cutoff for him for his time. So how do we get those two opposites to stay together in a run? Well, it's simple. We have to bring Franklin out to the front and have him set the pace the way we run. See, because if Franklin fails, we all have to stop. We all have to pick him up. We have to go get him, and we're going to end up running more. And this is what a team is all about. It's about working along the strengths that you have. Now, Franklin was a good guy. He might have been slow in the group, but he had some really good qualities that, you know, made up for his physical areas that that he didn't do well with. He was a great logistics person. You know, he understood the Marine Corps logistics system. He could get things for us. He would go out and and make sure we had all the things that we needed. And we could rely upon Franklin to get our stuff. So it wasn't that he was a useless person, right? It was the fact that he just didn't run well. Right, and so we didn't want to, you know, really lose him. So we have to run at his pace. Otherwise, we do lose a guy like that. And you might have people like that in your organization. Okay, um, you know, so emergency management and business continuity are pretty much a POG position, and we need to keep that. We need to keep up with those line forces. Right, we can't do this if we're all day all weighed down with non-essential tasks. Right, we have to be able to get our guys, right, and gals working in this position to help lead that, uh, to to help lead that pace. You see, frankly, at the end of the day, right, we didn't put him in a job that required to be a fast runner or carry a lot of gear. We put him in a position that he did well. You know, kind of going back to Jim Collins' idea of having the right people on the bus, but also putting them in the right seat. And this moves into removing obstacles. So now with the objective identified, you've written down your goals, you shared them with your team and your boss, Everyone has agreed that this is the direction that you need to take the department. However, yes, there's always a, however, the items that we've been placed on your desk still need to be completed by someone and maybe someone in the department or maybe out of your department, you do not want to necessarily shift those responsibilities. In some cases you can argue that something that should not be done is a nice to do. And you can really remove that completely off your plate. For example, one of my jobs, they wanted me to take on a neighborhood watch I did not have any experience nor desire to do crime prevention. So I pivoted. I took the idea of Neighborhood Watch, which we created this thing called Neighbor for Neighbor. It's a neighborhood disaster preparedness program. We had our volunteers will run the program. It was a win-win. It moved the mission creep for my department. and made it a volunteer program and a central part of the team. And when we, found, when we founded and funded the decision, right, it came across as a positive with contributions that the volunteer program was able to perform. We were able to get the program up and running um, with the commander's intent being in place, right, presenting the community, getting out there, doing stuff for the community, and really showing our presence. And we were able to highlight the talents of the volunteer program as well because they are an essential part of the city budget, right? And as the residents of the city were happy to see, the public safety departments were out there working together, providing some guidance on preparedness to include crime prevention. And the obstacles of this example were the linear thinking where we shift the thinking into a systems thinking and a problem solving approach. See, by removing that obstacle, it wasn't, we didn't cut any services, but it's put the position and put the job in the right spot for the right people to do the things in the right location. That's the idea of sometimes removing those obstacles. It doesn't mean that the job doesn't get done. It just means, does it really function in this place that needs to be? See, and our process is first to identify what is essential. Identifying what is important for your department. And then cutting out all the rest of the distractions that you keeps you from doing, what is important. When we try to do too many things at too many times and we keep adding on and we keep our we're overloaded, you know, and when we're overloaded, you can't do any of them well. And as Socrates said, right, the unexamined life is not worth living. We must first examine what is important to do all things that give value, find our why, ask good questions, find better answers, and then let that slow runner set the pace and you all get to the same destination at the same time. Thank you for being with us today, and visit Titan HST for all your communications needs. And remember to follow us on your favorite podcast player, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and join us. Until next week, stay safe and stay hydrated.
3: Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes.